Yes. Yeah, so the idea is that if you take people who were despised or marginalized or prejudiced against, the only way that, that the dominant culture has empathy for their suffering is if they're depicted as perfect and innocent. But human beings are not perfect and innocent. So if someone has to be entirely, entirely victimized and completely and purely innocent in order to be, quote, eligible for compassion, then they they never will make it. In this episode of the Interloper podcast, we had the immense privilege to speak with Sarah Shulman, a novelist, playwright, screenwriter, nonfiction writer, and AIDS historian. She is a distinguished professor of English at the City University of New York, College of Staten Island, and serves on the advisory board of Jewish Voice for Peace. The books we discussed with Sarah in this episode are Gentrification of the Mind, Conflict is Not Abuse, as well as her newest book, Let the Record Show, A Political History of Act Up New York, 1987 to 1993. I'm going to encourage everyone, if you're listening to this right now, to like press pause, go buy one of Sarah Shulman's books, read it, and then come back and listen to the podcast because there's no way we can talk about everything on here. And... If you feel like you don't have money to buy one, email us at programs at interloper.info and we will, if you don't have the money for it, we will buy a copy and mail it to you. Just give us your address. It's that important to us. So here is our conversation with Sarah Shulman exploring topics such as simultaneity, gentrification, abuse, compassion, supremacy ideology, and more. And I'm curious, I want to start out with a question we ask all artists that is so difficult to answer, even for myself. But who is your audience? Who are you writing to and who are you writing for? I really don't know. I mean, I went to my high school reunion and I could tell who was gay and who was straight because the gay people were like, Sarah, you've been doing so much. And the straight people were like, so Sarah, what have you been doing? (laughs) (laughs) So that was a while ago. But For most of my life, I've had a very underground readership, Mm. and it's been a lot of people, but not the people who are the gatekeepers necessarily, Mm. and I have very much wanted to be considered, you know, an American writer and not just be kept out of those kind of public conversations in that way. So I guess I've wished to be read by people who haven't yet come there. Do you feel like some of your books have been received more within like a broader audience than just within the queer community than others? Are there certain books in particular? Well, things are changing, right? So straight people are less prejudiced than they were before, and they're more able to universalize to a queer or, in lesser case, lesbian protagonist than before. But, you know, once I started writing about gentrification and AIDS, I'm not just writing about women. It's amazing what happens when you write about men. My most recent book is about ACT UP. And like, I got the best publisher I've ever had. I've been reviewed in the highest places. I've been interviewed by the guy gatekeepers. And it's amazing, you know, and then they're like, wow, you're such a good writer. Or like, I'll say an idea that I've literally been saying for 30 years. And they'll be like, wow, that's so smart. And you're just like, this is not right. 
Mm. You know, so, and now I have my, I'm back to writing lesbian fiction again. And I just sent out a new novel and it was turned down by everybody. Oh, wow. So, so I'm back to that. So it's like, it didn't extend really. So mm. yeah, mm. if you, it really, it really makes a big difference what your subject matter is much more so than how well it's written or how engaged it is. No, but that's, thanks for sharing that. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I love reading your work so much. I was talking to Connor before this, that to be really honest, the reason I love your work is I'm so uncomfortable when I read your writing and I just read your work. And I think you have, you are just so incredible at finding that fine line where I feel a hospitality to engage something uncomfortable. Some people just don't want to read things that are implicating. And I also, a friend of mine named Will Burton pointed out that I really believe in the idea of the unconscious. And that could be because I'm like a New York Jew who was born in the 1950s. And I'm very influenced by that all those refugee psychoanalysts who came from Europe to New York, you know, and all of that. So I believe in the unconscious. And I think that there we have motives that we don't understand. And there's a gap between what we understand about our own behavior and what's, what our real objectives are. Some people find that idea very, very insulting. The idea that they don't have full awareness of their intentions. And they reject that. And I don't know if it's... And in fact, I think it is generational. It is Jewish. It is New York. It is tied to a lot of categories. That's true. But I do believe it. So I think that if we can accept that there's things we don't know about ourselves, you know, then we know that that's true about other people also. I keep thinking like, I'm just really curious if you wouldn't mind sharing, how do you hold that personally and professionally as being someone who sees things, witnesses things, speaks to things, and then maybe it sounds like often if not all the time, you're getting projected back on just because you're seeing them and you're saying them. It's hard to break it down because a lot of times I just say something and I have no clue that it's going to be upsetting to people mm. because it just feels so obvious. And it's always been that way. It's been that way since I was a little child. So sometimes you just say something and people are like, oh my God, that's so funny. And I'm like, okay. And then say something and they're like, oh, that's so horrible. You're horrible. You're, you know, and I just don't, I can't measure it really. I mean, maybe it's, I don't know. It's something I've never been able to get a grip on. So it's inadvertent. Let's put it that way. Well, it has an impact on you. And I'm curious what motivates you to keep coming back. Like you've told, you tell stories in your work about, one of the things that was particularly touching and things that I think about is when you are in conflict with another person, even if they're doing some really harmful things to you and you talked about this one group who had kind of cut you off and then you came back on Yom Kippur and said, here a way I'd like to apologize. And I'll let you tell the story. I don't want to tell it for you. But you know, the context of that is, you know, they responded by saying you admitted you were wrong. Therefore, you know, we're right. Therefore we're right. Right. And so, which that is something really interesting of like, Believing in this mutuality, it's something that I'm always afraid of, especially when you're in a position where you lack power in different situations or different groups or different people. When you desire community and openness and to live open-handed, how do you deal with the fact that when you come forward, you're often that's weaponized against you? 
you know, you, there's two ways of looking at it. On one hand, you could say that I'm very, very optimistic and I ultimately believe that everything's going to work out. And, and I do. Or you could say that I'm very narcissistic and I can't see that other people are different than me. <laughs> and, you know, so, and I often I can't. Like, I happen to be very able. And it's hard for me to accept that there are people who are not able in certain ways, emotional ways. I feel like they just don't want to. So when people say, oh, she can't deal with that, I never believe that. I always feel it's that she doesn't have an incentive. But that's sort of looking at everyone else as, as though they were a mirror of me, you know? So it's hard to know whether it's selfish and childish or expansive and optimistic. I'm not sure which. But I don't have a lot of control over it. That's the thing. I'm 63. At this point, it's really hard to change. And I'm less motivated now than ever to change because my life is great and I have great friends and everything's good. So, you know, but but I'm sure people who don't like me would think those things are terrible flaws. Sarah, as you're talking, it's making me think of this this quote. I think it's by F. Scott Fitzgerald, which is a first rate intelligence is being able to hold two opposing ideas at the same time. And there's just so much of what you were just saying, but also in reading Gentrification of the Mind, where you are able to hold complexity and in a way that I think for you is obvious and why maybe it's hard for others is it's just, it's because it's, it's like, it's too much sometimes. I have this quote from your book, which is gentrified thinking is a dumbing down and smoothing over of what people are actually like. And that's, and that's just what I keep getting from what you're saying is that you're actually just telling people and, and saying what you see, which a lot of us don't want to see what is actually there. And well, what the, is actually there is really complicated. This issue that you're raising of simultaneity is really interesting. It's a big theme in my history of ACT UP, my book that just came out. Because one of the really, you know, one of the big questions is why was ACT UP so successful? And there's a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is because they had radical democracy inside the group. So people were allowed to do different strategies simultaneously in the same organization. And that's counter to a lot of left history where people were, were trying to be forced into agreeing on one strategy and one analysis. And that doesn't work. And when you look historically, left movements that have tried to do that always fail. I don't think there's a single exception. But it's much harder to have the anxiety of being in a movement where you can't control the other people. Of course, ACT UP people were dying, so they really were less interested in controlling the other people. They had more pressing needs, and that was one of the reasons that they were able to have this non-bureaucratic approach. But it worked. Well, it was interesting, like with the ACT UP book. So one of the things is that one of the reasons I had to write it was because the history was being really, really distorted. And these histories were coming out that were only white and only male and only a handful of white males were getting credit for this movement of hundreds and hundreds of people. And so I started putting in what, and then in the end, my book covers 140 people. And so a lot of them are women and people of color, but I didn't center them. 
I just said who did what. Mm -hmm. So if you just tell the truth of who did what, you end up with all these other people. But then when you get to the gatekeepers, they say, well, your shulman is centering women and people of color because I'm supposed to be PC or something like that. But I'm not. Mm -hmm. They were centering themselves in a way that was not accurate. But they don't see that because they still see themselves as neutral and objective and value free and everybody else's special interests. You know, we talk a lot about the artists that we choose to support, especially right now in as an arts organization, there's a lot of pressure to make certain statements and certain like when we're choosing artists, how we're choosing artists. And we realize that without putting this intentionality of like, we are only going to work with artists of color. We are only going to work with queer artists or female artists. We were just like, we're looking for the most creative artists that are saying interesting things. And then we look back and we're like, Hey, most of our artists are people of color and queer and women. There is such a creativity that is birthed out of a place of needing to find a place in order to do that. That can be, it can also err in the other direction. All right. You know, like a friend of mine, who's a Muslim woman colleague of mine, who's an immigrant and has an accent, was misunderstood by a black colleague about something she was saying. And the black colleague thought that she was saying something anti-black, but she wasn't. So she tried to explain it. And the woman said, a black woman is telling you something, you have to listen. And I was like, that's not true. A black woman could be full of shit like anybody else. Right. You know, so it's like, it's like in conflict is not abuse. I go into the thing about believe women mm-hmm. and how, you know, you can end up in an incredibly racist situation as we've been seeing over and over white women falsely calling the police and this sort of thing. And that's been historically true. You know, so you can't just come into a situation saying that because of a person's social category, anything they say is fine or whatever they do is elevated. That doesn't help anybody. Yeah. So how are we holding that tension in culture right now of really being individual when we're so globalized that it's easier to create these vast categories and make decisions based on categories, but also holding that with the personal, like we can't just say none of that stuff exists and none of that stuff matters because it does impact the personal. Well, you know, we have to see how everything shakes out because some institutions are doing like compensatory programming because they had inadequate representation in the past. And so now they're going to respond to that, but they may not be changing who's actually in power. Can you talk more to that? Well, well, like I'm looking at theater seasons in New York and I mean, on Broadway, there's still just crap and junk, right? But there are like five plays by Black playwrights that are getting Broadway debuts this season. And it hasn't been like that in the past. But there's still like the Diana musical and all of that is still there. So don't worry about that, people from New Jersey. What you want to see is there. But (laughs) so then, you know, white playwrights could say, oh, if you're white, you can't get on Broadway. Well, first of all, most people couldn't get on Broadway beforehand, but most people who got on shouldn't have been there anyway because the work wasn't very good. And let's see what happens when there's a critical mass of black voices. But on the other hand, the system might be playing a game because they may not financially support that work. They may not do what's necessary to get to sell those tickets, for example. And then in a year or two years, they'll say, well, we tried it, but it didn't work. So... You know, so, you know, we don't you just don't know what's really going to happen. And even putting people of color and women in positions of power doesn't guarantee anything because people can be chosen because they're going to serve a certain kind of agenda, even if they come from a certain community. 
So just because someone's a person of color or a woman doesn't mean that they have revolutionary ideas or that they're creative enough to actually turn things around either. You know, so there's all kinds of questions that we don't have answers to right now. So, Sarah, would you say that Broadway is a gentrified theater place, like a theater system? And would you say this is a de-gentrifying act they're applying to the theater system right now? I don't know about that. It's hard to answer that because there's something very old-fashioned about theater. So I'm not sure. Well, along those same lines, again, kind of talking a little bit about gentrification of the mind, I think it was really interesting because you wrote that almost a decade ago. And so I am curious. I actually wrote it much earlier. Okay. Yeah, mm. it, it took me almost 10 years to get it published. Wow. And it was held up for four years at the publisher because one of the... There used to be a chapter in there about Palestine. And one of the readers was a strong Zionist and held the book up. And I finally had to take the chapter out and write an entire book about Palestine to get the book, to get that book published. Wow. So it's actually, it really was written way too early. It took a long time. Yeah. It's so relevant for now, but also things have changed since you wrote it. And so I'm reading it again. I'm like thinking about, you know, specifically that you're defining gentrification as specific period of time. And so have your thoughts changed at all or how you're defining it? Oh, how yeah. That's developed? I was wrong about a lot of things. I thought that gentrification was when mixed race and mixed class communities got homogenized by bringing in suburban whites who favored businesses and food that reminded them of suburban culture. And that turns out to be the first stage of gentrification. I thought that was gentrification. Wow. What then happened is that all those businesses got gentrified and they couldn't pay their rents and Hmm. they got replaced by CVS and Dunkin' Donuts and all those chains and stuff. And then those went down. And now, I don't know what Seattle's like, but New York has gaping holes of empty storefronts in the most incredible neighborhoods like Bleecker Street and things like that because the owners get a tax deduction for the vacancy instead of being fined for it as they should be. So you end up with uninhabitable streets with no public merchant life. And that is late stage gentrification. Now, what's interesting, I live in the East Village, so now we're in COVID time. So there's a lot of empty storefronts and a lot of empty everything. But the chain stores are not reopening in this neighborhood. So the only businesses that are opening tend to be mom and pop, which we haven't seen in a long Hmm. time. So like there's a vintage art store that opened on art bookstore that opened or like a, a Vietnamese family with four tables opened a restaurant, you know, and that's new for around here. But they're still mostly empty because the city will not impose commercial rent control. And that's necessary to overcome gentrification. I mean, gentrification in this city could be defeated right now because there's so much empty space that's not being utilized. But in order for that to be done, there would have to be construction of about 500,000 affordable housing units. There would need to be commercial rent control. Regular rent control, residential, would need to be expanded. People would have to be fined for having vacancies and fined for buying to flip rather than buying to live. 
But those things are all doable because if you can say something that is a reasonable and winnable policy position, it can actually happen. But no one has made the commitment to that. But we could, we, New York could have an incredible renaissance if all of those, that storefront space became available to communities. I was going to ask you, yeah. I, was, <laughs> I'm like, I'm I know, I was like, we, we have the solution to gentrification right here. <laughs> it's just political will. Yeah. And what do you think is, is stopping us from being able to have that political will in New York City right now? Well, we've, we haven't had a good mayor since John Lindsay, and the next mayor's really a problem. And we had a horrible governor, and now we have another horrible governor. But we have wonderful people like AOC, and we have some really great young radical people of color in Congress who are trying to get through various kinds of bills that can save cities. So I don't know. It's, there are people who are trying, and they're very, I'm very inspired that they're there. Because I think like when you look at these young people of color in Congress, 15 years ago, they would be leaders of extremely marginalized left-wing movements with no impact at all on policy. And the fact that they're now in government is amazing. You know, they don't have power yet, but some of them are really smart. For the first time in my life, I'm interested in electoral politics. Yeah, so the idea is that if you take people who are despised or marginalized or prejudiced against, the only way that, that the dominant culture has empathy for their suffering is if they're depicted as perfect and innocent. But human beings are not perfect and innocent. So if someone has to be entirely, entirely victimized and completely and purely innocent in order to be, quote, eligible for compassion, to quote myself, then they, they never will make it. Because as soon as you find something about them that you don't like or that isn't great, then they lose their ability to be cared for. And what, what's so interesting about Isaac Singer is he's writing against the grain of the Holocaust because so many of the depictions of European Jews showed them as, you know, as primitives or else as incredibly superior. That was the other option, like the German Jews, you know, the smartest people in the world. They invented, you know, psychoanalysis and Marxism and the theory of relativity. They were so smart. And then the fascists killed them. Isn't that terrible? You know, but the truth is people, anyone who asks for help should get help just by virtue of being a human, just by being born. You shouldn't have to be eligible. And it's so interesting, the spectrum of desire to punish that's out there. Like, I was talking about this the other day with a friend of mine. A lot of people feel that they're not being heard in their pain unless the person they blame for their pain is punished. Right. That other person being punished means they were heard. But if we could separate those two things so that you could be heard in your pain without having to earn it, Right, just because you're in pain. And then the other person, let's see what their story is and what their complexity is. Like separate those two things. But it's it's a big spectrum because there are people who want to befriend the person who murdered their mother. 
you know, there are people who are so into reconciliation that there's no transgression that dehumanizes the other party. And then there's people who are like, if you send them an email they don't like, they'll never speak to you again. And they're going to organize all their friends to be mean to you. So it's not the act itself that has the inherent meaning. It's the individual's history and who's around them and what is the values of their community. And that's what determines the reaction. The act itself is inherently opaque. The same thing is true with like certain kinds of sexual transgressions. Like I was talking to a friend of mine who was involved with a university to look at why there were so many charges of sexual abuse among the student body. And she was like, you know, there's a small group of men who really are predators and they really do enjoy violating other people's will. It's a very small group. Most of these charges and cases are in gray area where there's people don't understand how you get to sex. They don't know how to read each other's signs. Women don't know how to present themselves. They're responding to cultural markers that they may not emotionally identify with and all of the stuff. It's very, very confused. But the same, like two people could have the same sexual experience and one person could feel like, they are damaged for life and they will never get over it. And the other person could be like, oh, well. And that's because the experience is, does not have an inherent meaning. It's who yeah. those people are. I was just thinking about how, you know, I have a 14 year old daughter and this is a kind of a morbid thing, but I'm like, hey, how do I prepare her for an, her inevitable sexual assault? And from that framework, because I don't have many female friends that haven't been sexually assaulted in some capacity. And so I was like, well, if almost all of the women that I know have been sexually assaulted or raped, then who are the men that are raping them? And how come we're not talking about that? And so I just started asking men in my life, like, hey, have you raped anyone? And the faux pas of even acknowledging something as rape or how we're talking about inherent in the way I'm asking the question is to admit any kind of fault that perhaps there was a violating act that occurred that they didn't realize was violating that we're not even talking about it. So it just continues to keep happening. And so why do you think that we're so scared to admit the complexity of humanity? Why do we need that good or bad, right or wrong, perpetrator, abuser, victim? Why is there such a resistance for us to talk about it in a more nuanced and complex way? Well, rather than say why, let me go more into the idea that you brought up. So I think what you're saying is that we don't have a way for dealing with with male offenders. And there are so many. And they're in every single social milieu. And they're in every arena. And they function differently. And some of them, it's a physical offense. And some it's excluding women systematically or whatever. But we haven't figured out how to identify it. And we don't have any kind of strategy for changing it. And one of the things I've been noticing is that right now there's a lot of emphasis on sexual harassment in a lot of ways, right? It's, it's a big cultural focus, but there's very little on sexism. And there's something almost entertaining about the way the media has gone for an examination and a focus on sexual harassment, like all these beautiful actresses telling these monologues about their violations by these creepy old guys. And there's, there's an entertainment quality there. 
But the idea of women being systematically treated as though they don't have dreams and that their contributions are second rate and that their perspectives are bizarre. And that is what it is to be a woman every day. That has not really been addressed. I mean, there were the feminist movement did try to address that at one point, and it was really discredited. Like, I don't think there's a radical movement that's been as mocked as feminist, second wave feminism, because that's what they were getting at. The idea of these conflicting realities. And we're very far from that now. Well, you're bringing up something that I can't stop thinking about that you talked about in Conflict Is Not Abuse is this idea of the bar of compassion and the standard that almost like it's just this radical idea that we could extend compassion to everyone and that you it doesn't have to be like this certain tier of rape or victimization or abuse, but because we won't extend compassion to people that their dreams just aren't taken seriously then and we're valorizing you know these really flashy stories but there's also the other side of it which is that there are people who have supremacy ideology about themselves and if you question them they think you're abusing them like they think that you have absolutely no right to ever question them and if, if you say anything that's implicating or makes them uncomfortable then you've crossed the line so you know there's that there's that and that needs to be adequately addressed but then there's people who are traumatized and they can barely keep it together. And so being asked to be self-critical feels impossible and feels like an assault. But both of these kinds of people, and sometimes they're the same person, it's just viewing difference as an assault. There is a narcissism to pain, right? People who are in pain often can't see other people's realities. But then there's the narcissism to power. So I keep wanting, like resisting this urge to do of being like, well, what should we do about it? But if you in your imagination were to think about the next wave of feminism, where do you think we should focus? What should we be focusing more on? Abortion. Sometimes I think like the right to abortion is more important than the right to vote. And sometimes that is actually true because you have no one to vote for. It's so fundamental. I don't see how women could feel that they have anything if they don't have access to abortion. And the truth is we haven't had it since 1979 because only between Roe and the Hyde Amendment was abortion funded in all 50 states. Ever since the Hyde Amendment, it's only been funded in seven states. So plenty of people in this country have had no access to abortion for decades now. And yet we act like we're fine. I always feel like when people talk about abortion, they're having two different conversations and it feels like a really lonely place to sit in the middle and be like, Hey, we're having two conversations. It's about when does life conceived and what do we do with that? And what's our morality around it and how do we protect life? And the other conversation is legality of like, who's deciding about what I do with my body and you can hold different views in different areas. But I, so I'm just curious your opinion. How do we change the conversation to actually move forward? I don't know the answer to that, but I will <laughs> say that, the whole life rhetoric is a manipulation. Okay. You know, no one has ever said that pre-birth is not life because we know that there's genetic material. So that's not, that's like a fake argument. Who cares? And it's the control issue is, is what it's really about. And we've gotten caught, they've gotten control of the rhetoric. Also, it's bizarrely gerrymandering has turned out to be the most brilliant, evil strategy that these people ever came up with. And they have longevity in terms of their strategies. They are willing to do strategies for 30 years, 50 years, until they get them. And we don't have that kind of commitment. The other thing that we don't have is the same 
this is what my play is about, but Christians, evangelical Christians and fundamentalist Christians offer a kind of community to the fallen that we don't offer. Explain it. What do you mean by that? That it's so easy to be ostracized in our cultures, in like the bourgeois left educated cultures. It's very, very easy to be ostracized. And there's no sense of that you have an inherent value or that you matter. And fundamentalism offers that belief. And, you know, of course, it's very brutal if you transgress in other ways, but there's something in the way that we construct groups that's very, very destructive and counter to our stated values. And also wrapping in when, like when you talk about shunning, because exactly you're talking about it's brutal if you transgress and then you get shunned from any particular group, which I grew up in a weird form of religion and Christianity and then living out in Seattle. It's really interesting to me where it's considered one of the least quote unquote religious cities in the U.S., but there's so much similarity to the the way that the groups come around social justice, around ideas, around ideology that feels really similar to fundamentalist Christianity that I grew up in. And so, and a lot of it has to do with the grouping and the shunning and the homogeneity of beliefs and ideology. Yeah, it's like it's a Christian model. It's a Protestant model, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting going back to ACT UP because ACT UP, ACT UP New York is the only thing I'm historicizing, not global ACT UP. It was pre-gentrification New York, and so it was a very Jewish, Italian, Puerto Rican, Catholic culture. And there's a lot of screaming and people grandstanding and yelling and all that stuff. But in the end, they came up with a politic that was big tent in which if I, you could do things that I didn't agree with. Even though I might yell at you, I wouldn't ultimately stop you from doing them. So there's, you know... There's like the polite control system and then there's the impolite freedom system. Oh, I was listening to your interview with Sam Sanders when talking about this ACT UP book. And uh, I really loved what you said. Is it Michael, the man who stood up in the church? Oh, yeah. And I just loved what you said about how he wasn't kicked out for like going against what everybody said you should be doing. And that there was no, there was no like, we're not going to shun him. Like, even though what he did, we disagreed with. Right. It wasn't even discussed. It wasn't a concept because these were people who were living in illegality. Homosexuality was illegal. They had no rights. They were dying. Their families had abandoned them. They had no supremacy ideology about themselves. You have to think that you're better than somebody to to kick them out. Yeah. Right. There's a hierarchy that's that's. And when you're a bunch of drug addicts and people who are having anal sex and whatever, at that time, it was hard you to take on that role. And on the flip side, I feel like where I think a lot about censorship too in the arts and in different areas when people are saying something that's really offensive and you hear people like, you can't say that. Like, we don't want to elevate this. But then they're still going to believe it. We just won't know that they believe it because they're not saying it. And so I just wonder, the danger of learning the right thing to say is that anyone can learn the right thing to say when there is a right thing to say. And then all of a sudden, I know everybody doesn't believe this way. So why is everyone saying the same thing? And that feels more dangerous because I don't know what we're walking into. Well, that's where the idea of having movements where people are allowed to think differently and disagree is the only way to go forward. I do think you you need to have a bottom line of values. Like in ACT UP, they had a a one-line statement of unity. 
direct action to end the AIDS crisis. If you were doing that, you could be in the organization. And that was very broad, you know. So there do have to be, there does have to be something that unites people, but not something that's controlling. How do we get back? How do we move in that direction of being able to have? I don't have an answer for that, but it's like. I'm looking for answers. <laughs> I keep trying to get answers from you. <laughs> Just whoever you're working with, do it the yeah. way you want to do it. I mean, five people can do a lot. Yeah, that's true. And also, I was wondering if you could talk a little more about, you brought up collectivity a little bit. And if I misquote this or say this wrong, please correct me. But when you've talked about an act up, how a lot of the work was done by the lesbian community. And then at some point when people were able, when it wasn't as much of a, when there was more medicine and there wasn't as much in the crisis mode that women and lesbians were pushed out of the. That's not really accurate. Okay. So I'm going to wait until me. you yeah. read the book and then no, no, you'll see. Okay, gotcha. Because it's yeah, just based it's... on what I've read from it. But could you give us a little bit? That's not really accurate. It's more okay. like when nobody had access, everyone was in the same boat, right? But in the 80s, the government was basically white and male. The media was white and male. The private sector was white and male. And the guys from ACT UP who came from the most elite backgrounds not in all cases, but in some cases, were the ones who were able to communicate best to those people. And so when the women were trying to help women with AIDS get benefits, they didn't have access to the same people that the guys who were trying to get drugs released had. So like Fauci was still in power at that time. You know, he was the man, it's the same guy. There were guys in ACT UP who had good relationships with Fauci, but the women, it was two years before they could get a meeting with him. You know, so the, basically your social position determines your playbook, and that's just a reality. So when you're trying to figure out what your strategies are going to be, you got to know accurately where you're positioned. And you, do you say that that is kind of what the framework you have to work from no matter what? You have to, and it's smart. Maybe we should end on that. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thank you so yeah, much, you guys. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank okay, you. Okay, take care. Right. Thanks. Bye. Let us know what you think and join the conversation at interloperinterloper.com slash podcast where you can leave us a comment, ask a question, or tell us what we missed or need to go deeper with. Interloper's vision is putting money into the hands of artists, saying the things we aren't supposed to say. If you'd like to support artists or this podcast, go to interloperinterloper.com slash funders to find out ways you can help increase creativity and conversation. Finally, we release the podcasts, new exhibition series, and more on the 29th of each month. The 29th of each month the 29th of each month so set your calendars and follow us on instagram at interloper underscore unlicensed to find out what's next be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you find your podcast interloper is a project of the milkshake club which is powered by shenpike this episode was produced edited and recorded by connor walden and tiffany danielle elliott and david s studio the song you heard on the podcast today is Lofi en la Fila de la Totiria by Palma Sur.